This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. Yo, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. If you're not listening to this on Friday, I hope you had a happy Friday. Um, <laughs> let's get into the Q&A. All right, so first question we have. I feel like no matter how lean I get, my abs just don't show up like I expect. Help. I got you. So first and foremost, have to say, always have to say, the most, the biggest piece of getting visible abs is getting your nutrition on point. Now, really, most people just haven't gotten as lean as necessary to achieve visible abs. I know that was for me for the longest time. Like earlier in my training career, I thought the secret was I just need to train abs more. I just need to build more muscle and eventually my abs will just start popping when the reality is most people just need to get leaner. So first and foremost, I would say to work with a nutrition coach. If your nutrition isn't already on point, if you don't feel extremely confident that you're already doing what you need to do nutritionally to get as lean as needed. Most dudes will need to get to anywhere from 8 to 12%, women probably around 15% body fat to really be able to see visible abs, which does first and foremost require that your nutrition is on point. So past that point... Then we can look at, or throughout that time, I should say, then we can look at, okay, what are you doing within your training to help you build thicker abs that will be more visible at higher body fats? And when you get leaner, will look basically more defined, more sculpted, so to speak. They'll pop out more. Because basically, well, nutrition is the most important piece of this. Um, just like imagine your bicep. If you never ever did any pulling type of movement, any bicep curls, any variations that train your biceps, when you got super lean, you wouldn't have a defined bicep under there. Most of us wouldn't anyways. Your arm would just look skinny. A similar thing can happen with your core. Now again, the reality is for most people, which is why I'm doubling down on this nutrition stance first, it's pretty rare that someone starts, coach, starts coaching that hasn't trained their core for hypertrophy, for building muscle. Most people have done a shit ton of like weighted crunches, cable crunches, leg raises, reverse crunches. So often this isn't the problem when it comes to core training or proper core training. More often than not, the problem I see is people haven't trained their core for stability. But I think that the nutrition aspect of this is pretty clear. So let's dive into, okay, how do you go about building a core that looks both functional and aesthetic? So basically, we want to make sure that you are including a good dose of anti-flexion or excuse me, not anti-flexion, anti-movement exercises. So this means we're working in anti-extension, anti-rotation, and anti-lateral flexion exercises throughout the week. So for my clients, again, that want function and aesthetics, typically I'll program at least two of these variations throughout the week. Now, the reality is often movements are multiple of these at the same time. So what I mean by that is a renegade row, for example, that's both an anti-rotation exercise and an anti-extension exercise. So there 
we have two bases covered at once. So typically, so then I do like a renegade row and maybe we do like a farmer's carry or something like that. Um, and throughout the week, we are just making sure we have a couple anti-movement exercises programmed into your core training. Now, these aren't what are going to build great aesthetic abs. That's something I'm going to touch on in just a second. And now thinking of this, I'm going to make a whole podcast on this topic in the future. But for now, um, we just want to make sure that throughout the week, we're training movements, core movements that help us resent, resist, wow, I can't speak, extending out the spine, rotating at the spine or bending sideways at the spine. That's anti-movement. One to two variations of that or one to three variations of that per week. Then when we get into training your core for aesthetics, for looks, for abs that really pop when you get lean. Here we're really focusing on spinal flexion, which means that basically we're focusing on leg raises, knee raises, and reverse crunch variations, and then sit up and crunch variation. So a common mistake with this style of training people make is just doing thousands of reps. You'll see people that, like I remember one of my homies that I lifted with back in the day, he would always go do hundreds and hundreds of reps, hundreds of body weight reps of decline sit-ups. When the reality is like every other muscle group, you're best suited to stick to the five to 30 rep ranges most of the time when you're training your abs and really chase effective reps, meaning that most of your sets need to be within a few reps of failure to achieve muscle growth. And also you have to realize here that less than five rep high weight sets aren't a great idea for your abs because other muscles typically take over when the weight gets that heavy. Um, Also, another thing I should mention is your abs are gonna recover quickly. So if you're really chasing the best most built abs possible train them three to five times per week with smart programming and you likely won't have any recovery issues so how i see it how i programming it for online clients it makes most sense for you to train one to two ab movements multiple times per week much more so than it does to just have one ab day throughout the week so basically we want to incorporate crunch variations and reverse crunch variations here. So as far as crunches go, you could do cable crunches, weighted crunches, um, a decline crunch or a weighted decline crunch is a movement that I like a lot. We have a much greater range of motion than your normal crunch. You can get more of an eccentric. If muscle damage is part of building muscle, we built we can create more muscle damage in that way. A Swiss ball crunch or a weighted Swiss ball crunch I also like. For similar reasons, we can just achieve more range of motion there. As far as reverse crunch variations go, we have, of course, reverse crunches, decline reverse crunches. Again, we can achieve greater range of motion, a hanging knee raise or a hanging leg raise, and a toes to bar. And really, when I do a hanging leg raise, I like to turn them into like a toes to bar, but I like to use the ab straps because another mis- or another common issue I see people make, that doesn't make sense, a com- common mistake I see people make is doing like a hanging leg raise, but the limiting factor isn't their actual abs, it's their grip giving out. So really I would push you to choose the couple movement variations that you feel the best here, that you actually feel the best in your abs. You don't feel like anything else is a limiting factor. So again, like the grip we talked about with a hanging leg raise, which in that case you could just use the ab straps. I always use them. Um, But I don't, and on a side note, I don't know how these, all these people are always training hanging leg raises just like straight up hanging from the bar without maybe i just have a weak ass grip who knows but 
<laughs> not relevant. So from here, I would train one to two variations of these two to four times per week. I would start at two times per week with, I would likely, if you really want to focus on abs, I would just use a crunch variation and a reverse crunch variation program for both. And then you can sprinkle in more throughout the week, depending on the progress that you gauge. And that is how it would go about building abs that are more visible as you get leaner. All right. Next question we have is from the membership training programs. I'm back backtracking. I'm scared of back. Okay. So he's saying he's scared of backtracking. The gym is closing down. What are some effective ideas to complete my workouts? All right. So basically what he's saying is, and this is a nutrition client of mine as well. So he brought this up um, in his check-in gyms are closing and he's following um, one of the functional aesthetics programs that I dropped one of the eight weeks programs that I dropped a bit ago how to adjust this now that the gyms are closed. <laughs> Many people are in this situation, gyms closed, gyms opened up, gyms reclosed. So the reality is, and I believe I hit him up about this, and he said he had bands, he had 25-pound dumbbells, and I think he had a bench, and that was it. So the reality of this is you can still make great progress, whether you're training at home or training at the gym. I've had many new online clients absolutely crush it. <laughs> were honestly hesitant to start coaching because they weren't going to be able to be in the gym. But the reality is muscles are dumb. They don't know whether the tension that they're under is coming from a backpack that we have loaded full of like champagne bottles plus a band or a heavy dumbbell. As long as you can apply adequate tension, we can achieve effective reps. So again, getting relatively close to failure within your training, then we're going to get very, very similar muscle building results. And again, so many new online clients that have started during this whole pandemic have crushed it following this at-home style of training. Many of my clients that were training at the gym and had to switch to at-home training have also crushed it. Now, straight up, I get it. <laughs> the weights... There's just something about throwing around weights that's fun, but in situations like this, you can absolutely still crush it at home. So first and foremost, I would say to focus on single arm and single leg movements. So actually, let me, let me take this back. First and foremost, I would say we want to make sure we're checking these variations of, or you're taking these boxes. You're going to do a squat or a lunge, a hinge, an upper body push, an upper body pull, and an anti-movement variation with each training day. So really, if you're training at home, I would push you to train full body three to four times a week unless you have a decent amount of equipment. Because the reality is no matter what, our intensity is just going to be a bit lower. So it makes sense for us to ramp up frequency, which is why we come to this full body style of training. Now, this works out well because the client that's asking this is already following a full body style of training. Um, again, it's in a group program, but this means that all his programs, every training day is going to be built around squat or lunge, a hinge, an upper body push, an upper body pull. So those are kind of the boxes that every time I'm programming a full body training day, those are the boxes I tick. So you can just look at it and very easily, once you understand this, you can look at your training program and see, okay, so my upper body push for today was a bench press. 
Now that I'm at home, what's a horizontal pushing movement that I could plug in for a bench press? So maybe I maybe if I'm doing 25, I have these 25 pound dumbbells, I could rep out like 100 dumbbell bench presses. Probably not effective, but maybe I can do a band resisted push up. I can load my backpack up with these two 25s, and I can put that on my back. Damn, that like they'd be pretty hard. Maybe if I put my hands on books. To increase my range of motion, I can get that stretch just like I would with a bench press, and I can make very similar progress. Um, so, really though, taking it back to my next point, which was focusing on single leg, single arm, and single leg movements, this is smart because again, we want to make sure that we achieve effective reps. The most important thing here is that we hit these, we train these variations of squat, lunge, hinge, push, pull, within. In this case, I would push you to go one to two reps for failure. So it helps to make these single arm and single leg movements. Because if you're doing, if you're holding both 25s in each hand, you're holding a 25 in each hand, excuse me, and you're doing a squat, it's going to take you a long ass time to get to failure or near failure. It's just going to be brutal. Nobody wants to do that. But if you turn this into a rear foot elevated split squat, you're holding both 25s, you're holding a 25 in each hand, I don't know why I keep saying that, and you're taking this single leg to failure, okay, we just doubled the load. So now you're gonna be able to hit failure a lot quicker. Similar concepts apply with single arm training. We can also really slow the negative down on each rep. I would slow it down to three to five seconds. Really create more time under tension and again, focus more on that concentric portion of the movement. And if you really don't have a lot of weight, you can even add three to five second pauses at the bottom of reps. Increasing range of motion, like I touched on earlier, also really helps. So like with the example of using the books for push-ups, that's a great one. Um, if we're doing, again, if we're doing that split squat and still it's relatively easy, okay, can I increase the range of motion any more? Maybe I put my front foot on a book and my back foot is on the chair. So I have to go even lower to achieve this full range of motion. Little things like this make a massive difference. And then finally, if you are limited on weights, adding in resistance bands and loaded backpacks is super, super helpful. So again, like on the split squat, okay, this is still pretty damn easy, but if I load my backpack up with like some heavy ass books, some water bottles, something like that, okay, shit, it's suddenly a lot harder. So all these are different things we can implement, but the reality is just looking at whatever training program you are following right now and looking at, okay, is this a squat variation, a lunge variation, a hinge variation, an upper body horizontal or vertical push, an upper body vertical or horizontal pull? Then, okay, now that I've deciphered which of these variations it is, what's a different variation that I do have the equipment for that I can plug in? As long as you look at it from that perspective, you'll get good results and also making sure that we are achieving these effective reps. So again, taking it one to two reps shy of failure. All right, final question of the day. Can you talk about reverse dieting versus jumping straight back to maintenance calories after a cut? What are the pros and cons of both? All right, so this is a topic I've talked about quite a bit. Honestly, the traditional model of reverse dieting, increasing by 50 to 100 calories, every one to two weeks until like six months after you've ended a fat loss phase, you're finally out of a deficit. So let's say you end a fat loss phase, you were at 
let's say you in a fat loss phase and you were eating 1300 calories and we estimate that your maintenance calorie intake is 1700 calories so following a traditional reverse dieting model again from your current deficit we would just increase by 50 to 100 calories every one to two weeks generally mostly via carbs a bit of fat typically mostly carbs and this process would go on for weeks until we finally reach the point where you're at your maintenance versus the approach that I generally take with clients is we're going to bump to 90% of your estimated maintenance right after the diet, just to make sure that we don't overshoot maintenance. And we're going to get you back to maintenance ASAP. So the flaw in this way that people see reverse dieting, the traditional reverse dieting process is they think that it somehow speeds up your metabolism. When the reality is your metabolism is essentially a product of how much you're moving, how much you currently weigh, and how much you're eating. So basically to speed up your metabolism, you have to burn more calories by either eating more through the thermic effect of food, which also we have to account for the fact that we're taking in more calories, so we're more likely to gain fat by moving more, or training more, or by weighing more, which again, if the goal is to increase your metabolism as much as possible and stay as lean as possible, gaining a bunch of weight to stay lean doesn't really make sense. And this is somewhat a topic that I I could go off on this, but anyways, um, so when we're looking at like this reverse dieting by 50 to 100 calories, no matter what, like when we get to maintenance, by definition, if we are at maintenance, then we are not gaining fat or maintaining. So why would we spend three to four months slowly increasing calories with you feeling like shit? Like if you've ever gone through a traditional reverse dieting process, I know I have. And after the cut was over, I spent the next like three months were unproductive as fuck with my training. I felt like balls still because I had gotten shredded. I felt like balls still post diet. Um, My training was shit. I absolutely wasn't building muscle. I wasn't fueling my body. My body was still so lean and eating so little that it just wasn't going to prioritize building muscle. Now, don't all take this like no matter what, after a diet, you have to gain fat. With the context of this, I was absolutely shredded when I was following this reverse diet, I was past the healthy body fat range. Whereas most people that are going through a reverse diet, uh, some people that are going through a reverse diet, if you just got on lifestyle lean, you are not just like absolutely shredded. Like you could hop on a bodybuilding stage or do a photo shoot, then you're fine. But sometimes like if you got super, super lean, again, like a bodybuilding stage or a photo shoot level of lean, you're likely going to have to gain some fat just to get back to healthy. So the point of this being, if you're in a deficit, your body is much less likely to prioritize building lean muscle. That said, we know that the reverse dieting, this traditional reverse dieting process doesn't do anything beneficial as far as our metabolism goes. So why would we waste two to three months reverse dieting by 50 to 100 calories when we could just get you back to near your maintenance sooner? get you eating more, get you feeling better, and building more muscle sooner rather than later. Put your body in a state where it can prioritize building muscle sooner rather than later. Now, again, 
This doesn't mean you have to add fat, but just being back to maintenance is going to be more conducive to you being able to build more muscle because your body senses that you're taking in more energy. So therefore, it will allow you to build more energy expensive tissue or calorically expensive tissue muscle. All right. So past this point, typically how I go about this is reverse dieting. Like when I talk about reverse dieting in the context of my clients, it's once we've already seen this jump to maintenance, then we're looking at, okay, now that we're feeding you more, you're eating more, we know that, okay, the thermic effect of food is going to be higher. So you're burning more calories there. As you're eating more, for many people, NEAT is also going to increase. So all these little things like fidgeting, pacing, blinking, calories burned there are going to increase. Plus, you might have a little bit more, your glycogen stores are going to be more filled up. You have a little bit more food in your belly. So your body might weigh a couple pounds more, which is far from a big difference, but burn, moving a heavier body does also lead to you burning more calories. So again, your metabolism does speed up a bit, but it's not more beneficial to do this in 50 to 100 calorie increases than it is to do it with this large jump to right around your maintenance. Um, so from there, then like the reverse dieting process that I'm talking about with clients is us past that point. This is where we follow more this traditional model of reverse dieting where, okay, now that we are at your maintenance, let's see how far we can bump up your maintenance. Let's see how your body responds, how your energy output responds to us feeding you a bit more. Some people genetically will really ramp up the amount of exercise outside of the gym that they do without really even thinking about it in response to eating more. Some people will do it very little. So some people can increase their maintenance calories a lot and still maintain some, not a lot at all. Very much depends on you as an individual and your genetics. But that's what we're looking for in a reverse dieting. How much can we feed you without you gaining fat? That's the reverse dieting process that I take online clients through. I honestly, I talked about this with Eric Trexler of Stronger by Science um, in our episode on metabolic adaptation. The only context he could come up with where it would make sense to do this very, very slow increase was if <laughs> the traditional reverse dieting process was for like a Mr. Olympia level bodybuilder who was trying to stay stage lean but still like gradually be able to eat a bit more. So you're just being very, very, very cautious with these increases. Okay, maybe he has 100 calories more than he had last week, so he feels a bit better, but he has another bodybuilding competition coming up in like six weeks. Now, <laughs> if you are Mr. Olympia listening to this podcast, shout out to you. I hope you crush that competition coming up in six weeks. But if not, it's likely that the traditional reverse dieting model just doesn't make very much sense for you. All right, and that is all we have for today. As always, thank you for tuning in. Have a great weekend.